0: Greetings. Welcome to Whites Run Baptist Church Online. Today we're going to talk about the one necessary thing. The one necessary thing. At the beginning of each year, I like to devote one sermon to kind of getting this kicked off for the year. Review the previous year, be able to set priorities and goals for the upcoming year. Seems to be a time of year when people like to do that kind of thing. And so I like to help by putting a biblical perspective on it. Uh, Many things in our lives compete for priority in our life, our health, our career, our family, and people are setting goals with regard to these particular things, especially this time of year. But one thing is so far and away above all other things that we're able even to call it the one necessary thing, because in comparison to it, all other things are somewhat small and not that those other things are unimportant or should be ignored, but that compared to this one thing, they all actually somewhat depend upon it. And this one thing is devotion to knowing Jesus Christ. This is how the apostle Paul referred to it. He said, I count everything as loss compared to knowing Christ. This one thing effectively then gives the purpose, the motivation, the direction to all the other things in our lives. It becomes a foundation of all those other areas in which we wish to progress. So what are the benefits of putting this first? And how can I make sure that this is a priority for me in this coming year? We're going to find answers, answers in the letter to the Philippians, so we'll be in Philippians. We'll be starting in chapter three, verse two. The letter to the to the Philippians was written around a d sixty by the apostle Paul, and it was written from prison. Now the apostle Paul was martyred he was killed by the authorities around AD 64 to 66. And by the time he writes this letter in AD 60, he had been ministering already for over 20 years in the name of Jesus Christ. So this letter comes to us with a great deal of authority, With a great deal of perspective, a man that had seen many wondrous things done in the name of Jesus Christ, many people converted, but he'd also been stoned and left for dead. He had also been persecuted in almost every place he went, and he had even been persecuted to the point of being in prison for the faith. And so when we receive this letter as the Philippians received it in the first century, we receive it now. We receive it with the understanding of who this man is and what he had experienced and the great grace that was given to him by God and the effect it had on his life. And so let's read it with those things in mind from his perspective, from one who had served the Lord in good times and in bad, who had seen it all, even the the persecution of prison for his faith. And so we're going to join him in Philippians chapter three, starting at verse two. And We're going to read this as if we had just received it ourselves. He starts with a warning. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us Who think, who are mature, think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father God, we praise your name this day and we rely upon you to give us understanding of these things. By your spirit, they were inspired. By your servant, they were written. And today, by your servants, they are read. So may we be enlightened by your spirit to understand these things and rightly apply them to our lives that we may respond to this great upward call to know Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Well, there we have a a powerful passage and many passionate terms are in there. But here's what I want to do. I want to focus in on verse eight here. And the reason I want to do that is I want to show you uh, what the center of this is. The center of this passage is, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And so at the center of this, the focus is knowing Christ Jesus, that it to Paul surpasses all the other things in his life. All other considerations are small compared to it. And I wanna point out another verse to you and that very powerful verse is John seventeen three, where it says, this is eternal life. And this is our Lord Jesus praying to the father at the end of his ministry, right before he's gonna be arrested and taken to the cross, he says "Uh, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So Jesus here defines eternal life as a relationship, as knowing the Father and the Son. And so this is powerfully important for us to understand and going forward is that, you know, the priority of Jesus Christ, what it is that he came and offered to us was this eternal life, which is defined by knowing him and knowing God. And this only makes sense if you understand the flow of the narrative of the Bible where all the trouble begins in the garden when Adam and Eve disobey God, they eat of the fruit of the tree And their relationship with God and mankind's relationship from that point forward is fractured. But the immediate promise of God is that he would send one to set things right. And of course, we know that one is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We follow that thread all the way through all of the scriptures, where it's about reestablishing the relationship that mankind is to have with their creator. Well, to give you a short outline of this, here's what I want to propose is that this knowing Christ is the one necessary thing. And when we have this one necessary thing in our life, it gives us confidence. It gives us righteousness. It gives us power and perspective and motivation. And then we're going to see and we're going to invite you to apply these things to yourself at the end in an invitation. And so we're going to see that all these things are granted to us uh, by having the one necessary thing. That is, having as our priority, knowing Jesus Christ. Well, first of all, let's talk about confidence in this, uh, Jesus, uh, as you saw, Paul began his passage with a warning concerning false teachers. And what these false teachers, the gist of what they were doing was basically this. They were coming along after Paul to the various places he had been, and they're saying, you know what? These uh, these things that Paul's teaching, yeah, these are good that Jesus Christ will bring you salvation uh, by his grace through faith, but you also have to have these works to go along with it because you can only be saved by doing these good things. And then what they do is they break open the law that is the Old Testament. They take a look at those things and they say, now, let's start with this. You need to be circumcised and you need to then adhere to these particular worship patterns and you need to, you know, begin to follow these rules in order that you would be saved in Jesus Christ. Well, Paul, in the letter to the Galatians, pronounces that whole idea as anathema. in other words, that let that be accursed above anything else. And he referred to these ideas as a different gospel. and that's why his warning is, "Look out for the dogs, for the evildoers." who mutilate the flesh. In other words, they were pushing circumcision. And his attitude was, if you're not doing circumcision for the right reason, which would be to identify with the promise of Abraham under the old covenant, not under the new, he says, if you were to do that, it's no more than mutilation. In other words, it's not devotion. It's not an act of worship. It's it's a mutilation of the flesh. He speaks in such strong terms about this. And he goes, We're the circumcision. That is, he refers to it in the Book of Romans, the circumcised of heart. We're the ones who are the true circumcision who worship God by the who worship by the Spirit of God. Remember when Jesus spoke to a woman at the well and he said, Uh, A time is coming and is now here when those who worship will worship in spirit and in truth. See, her question was one of religious practice. Should we worship here in Samaria or do we have to go to Jerusalem to worship like the Jews do? And he goes, hey, look, it's not really either one. It's not about the place. It's about worshiping in spirit and in truth. And so this is what Paul is warning them against. And then this, what we have is basically a kind of a digression that we're studying here. And so in a way, works are necessary for salvation because they testify to the salvation. No one can claim to be truly saved in Jesus Christ and yet not have good works. This is what James was teaching in James chapter 2, when he says, uh, faith without works is dead. In other words, if you say you have faith, but you don't have the works to back it up, that's not real faith. It's dead faith. And this is an error in thinking that these works accomplish salvation. Our works are the sign of our salvation. And to say that the works accomplish the salvation is putting the cart before the horse. If we look in Isaiah 64, 6, it says in in a famous verse, many people know, uh, we all have become like one who's uncleaned and all our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. In other words, in Isaiah, without having our heart right, what he's saying is even the good things that we do are like unclean rags, filthy rags to be presented before the Lord. And over and over again in the Old Testament, the Lord tells his people, look, I would rather you have your heart right than bring me your uh, offerings. Your offerings are actually a stench to me because you're coming and you're doing the ritual part of your religion, but you're walking away and you're not acting like you know me. You're treating people badly. You're being dishonest in your dealings, but yet you come and you do the rituals prescribed by the law. And indeed, this has been a bane upon Christianity even, where people say, well, those people talk a good talk, but they don't walk the walk. In other words, oh, I met Christian people and they weren't very nice to me, or they were hypocritical in what they did. And sometimes those indictments are legitimate. Sometimes those indictments are just an excuse to ignore the truth. But nevertheless, there's a kernel of truth to that, that sometimes we... Show up at church, and sometimes we do the things that we ought to do as Christians, but yet we're lacking the really good things, and that is to do mercy and justice and to love people as we love ourselves. This accords what Paul is saying here. This goes right along with what Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount, because in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus takes some of the big rules, some of the Ten Commandments, and he steps them up a notch. And says, it's not really about whether you're just not murdering somebody. It's about whether you actually harbor hate in your heart for anyone. That's murder. And he does the same thing with adultery. He says, it's not about whether you've actually committed adultery. It's about whether you've harbored lust in your heart after someone who is not your spouse. And so he brings everything up a notch, showing that these things are matters of the heart. That it's not the letter of the law. It's the spirit of the law that is important and so this is important because if you find yourself trusting in your good works to make you right with God, Paul is speaking directly to you. You can have no confidence that you are accepted by God because you can't make your heart right. You can follow the Ten Commandments outwardly but you cannot follow them Inwardly. Recently, I spoke with a, a brother who met a Christian who said that we must observe the Sabbath. And indeed, we may observe the Sabbath. Indeed, it can be a great blessing to continue to observe the Sabbath on a Saturday. Many people have transitioned the Sabbath to Sunday because that's the Lord's day when he rose from the dead. And we celebrate on that day and we treat that kind of as a Sabbath. But the New Testament makes it very clear that we don't have to revere any particular day above any other. The Lord indeed has made them all. Now, if we see our observation of the Sabbath as necessary to please God, then we fall into wondering if we ever did it right. Do you see, if you ever decide, okay, I'm convicted. Uh, God wants me to keep the Sabbath. And I need to keep the Sabbath in order to maintain a good relationship with God. Then you'll constantly be wondering, well, have I observed the Sabbath correctly? And are there other things I should do? Because alongside the commandments for the Sabbath in the Old Testament, there's all these feasts and everything to observe. And all those can be special and great and edifying, but do, do I have to observe those and must I observe them in a particular way? And then things get very difficult because as we begin to observe those those other feasts and things, they require that we would go to Jerusalem. Well, that's simply not an option for many of us. And many of those things require sacrifices to be done, but we know Jesus fulfilled the sacrifices. Do you know he's also fulfilling all the feasts? Do you know that Jesus has also fulfilled the Sabbath, that the book of Hebrews describes him as our final Sabbath rest. The rest that the people of Israel were looking for in the land, the rest that the Sabbath teaches about and speaks of, is the final rest in Jesus Christ himself, where we will rest from our struggles with sin, will rest from difficulties of the world, will rest from the weariness of the fall. So many people will come along and, and try to say, well, you've got to do this. You've got to do that. And indeed, we're allowed to do anything we want to, really, as long as it's not a sin. We can observe whatever feast we want. We can worship God in our own particular ways. The Spirit leads us. But we need to be careful about what is our motivation for doing that. Because if we think the motivation is to stay right with God, to accomplish our salvation with God, to have acceptance with God, then we will always be in a never-ending cycle of asking questions like, am I doing everything I should? Am I doing it properly? See, it's the motivation. Why do you do good works? Do you do good works to gain salvation, to gain favor with God? Do you understand that when we do acts of worship, like observing the Sabbath or the feasts or other things like that, and we present it to God in order to be accepted by him, that's the same thing as giving someone a gift and then waiting for the payment. Or even just giving them a gift and then just expecting them to treat us a certain way. It's not a gift at all if that's what we're doing. It's actually a, a transaction. It's a sale and it's not, no longer an offering to God. It becomes a bribe. So think on these things. What are the reasons for your good works? Do they come out of a sincere heart of worship or are you buying God off for his favor? Paul had this kind of confidence confidence in his works, confidence in the law, as a Pharisee. And he talked about that. He followed all the rules. He learned all the right doctrines. He acted zealously, even persecuting the church, believing it to be a threat to the Jewish faith and an insult to God. Everything, even every good thing about his prior life, therefore, he counted as rubbish compared to knowing Christ. You can't have confidence under the law because you cannot have enough righteousness. However, if you focus on knowing Jesus Christ, you can have confidence because you will understand that he has done all things well and grants to you his perfect righteousness. Look at Philippians 3.9. Let's go back there just for a second. He says to be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So in other words, you don't have to manufacture a righteousness of your own to please God. It is pleasing that you would rest in his righteousness And as all your confidence and faith is put in the person of Jesus Christ, then he will begin to reveal to you what you should do and even grant you the power to do those things. And we'll talk about power later. But now let's talk about righteousness for a moment. The word righteousness simply means a right standing with the law. And therefore, a right standing with the lawgiver, that is God, But unfortunately, the righteousness we earn from performing works of the law is insufficient to erase our sin because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In other words, if we wanted to be righteous before God, we would not only have to do all that the law tells us to do, but we would have to be free from sin while we did it. That's why Jesus Christ had to come. He was the one that was truly free of sin, and he wasn't even born of a man, but only of a woman, so that he didn't even receive the guilt of of Adam upon him. And then he lived a perfectly righteous life. He did all the right things. He did none of the wrong things. And then he took that life and made it a payment for our sins. And because of that, then he takes our sins upon himself. He is able to grant us his righteousness. And so this is the great transaction that happens. He takes our sins, we receive his righteousness. Listen to how it's referred to in the book of Romans here. It says, now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That's what's been revealed. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, that is a payment, by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. And then look what he says here. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so verse 26 there says that he might be just, that is, he would be right with the law in what he did, but then he would also be the justifier in that he's the one who makes us right with the law. And so our right standing with the law is granted by God through faith in Jesus Christ. And there is no other way. There is no other way. And that's how he begins his passage. Because look what he says in verse 20, right before the verses we just read. He said, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin." So then the natural question is, why Why then even give the law if the law couldn't make us right with God? Paul goes on to explain that in the book of Romans, and I'll leave that to you to find it. But basically, it would point us to what the standard is. It would show us that we were impossible uh, we were impossibly separated from God and no works of the law could bring us near. The law reveals our sin and our need for Jesus Christ. So in this relationship with Jesus Christ, then this relationship of faith, then we're not worried about whether we've done well enough today to stay on God's good side. Rather, we stand on the perpetual righteousness of Jesus Christ. If I am represented in heaven by the righteousness of Christ today. I will be represented there tomorrow. And that takes away this angst of always wondering if I've done enough. And what I have done, have I done it well enough? And have I left anything undone? And have I done anything that is amiss? We're now free to worship him however the Spirit of God leads us to worship. So our confidence, as he says in in Philippians here, our confidence, therefore, is not in the flesh. See, those that trust in the law and everything, their confidence is in the flesh. That is in themselves and what they're able to do. But the confidence of a believer in Jesus Christ is in Jesus Christ. And that's how we can know that our sin has been paid for, that we are in right standing with God. Not because of what we've done, but because of what he's done and he has done all things well. So we have confidence in Christ with him as our priority, with our relationship with Christ. We have the righteousness of Christ, and that indeed gives us power. Uh, It's clear that we're put in this position by the power of God. passage in Romans makes it clear that we receive this gift through faith. And so all this was accomplished by the power of God, and we have but to receive a free gift of God. But if we are given this position by the power of God, can we expect that we could hold on to it in our own power? That he grants it to us that says, here it is, now see if you can keep it. Well, Philippians 3.10 gives us a little clue here. Look what Paul says. He says, that I may know him, that that part of knowing Christ is this, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in death. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. When we know Jesus, we know the power of his resurrection. And that's important for us to know the power of his resurrection. And we know it from the point of view of someone who has experienced it, someone who has seen something. They experience it. They don't know it in the form of an equation. In the words on the page of a book, they know it by, wow, I've seen that at work. I was dead. Now I'm alive. I was uh, in sin, and now I'm in righteousness. He has changed me from the inside out. The believer knows the power of the resurrection already even though they've not been resurrected even though they didn't witness Christ's resurrection that same power is the spirit in us by which he works through us look what it says in Romans 8:11 it says if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies Through his spirit who dwells in you. In other words, it's that same spirit, the spirit of God that indwells you, that empowers you to live this Christian life. In life, we often feel powerless, and indeed, against life and this world, in many ways, we are. Remember, we were slaves to sin. We were being led astray by this world system, which, of course, is led by Satan himself. We do not have what it takes to stand against him. But Jesus Christ does. And when the Spirit of God dwells in us, then we have in us this power to resist. Because the Bible says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Saying, in other words, you've got the Spirit of God in you. Satan can't stand against it. When we endeavor to do in this life, we may be able to do it. In other words, we might be able to accomplish many things in our own power, just in the power of what Paul calls the power of the flesh. But the things that really matter in life require the power of God. and That power is made available in relationship to Jesus Christ. When we understand this, it gives us proper perspective. Did you notice Paul talked about the past? And we can talk about the past and we can have it in proper perspective only when we have this relationship with Jesus Christ, the one who has accomplished perfect righteousness on our behalf. Paul looked back on his life and he saw all of what the world would call righteous acts. What the Pharisees would have said, hey, these are good things that you're doing. You're following the rules. You're you're a good Pharisee. You're a good man. And he looked at all of those things and he said they are rubbish. They're trash compared to knowing Jesus Christ. Knowing Christ is where it's really at. Knowing Christ is the real treasure of this world. And this is important for us in pressing forward as we come to a new year and we're setting goals and we're looking ahead to what we can do. It's important for us to look at our past and understand it in right perspective. That anything in our past other than knowing Christ compared to knowing Christ is rubbish. Now, some of those things were necessary, and some of those things, from a worldly perspective, were obligations, things that we were right to do, but in comparison to Christ, to knowing Him, they're rubbish. Look at Philippians 3 8 here, and look at what this says. In verse 8, He says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my lord for his sake i have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that i may gain christ look at this he counts everything that he had lost and paul had lost it all following christ he lost friends he lost his status as a Pharisee and his position in the Jewish community. He lost all of his wealth. And there were times when he had absolutely nothing, when he was stoned and left outside the city for dead, when he was imprisoned, when he was treated badly, when people who had worked with him in the faith and everything came alongside him, said they believed and everything else, had deserted him. And he said, that's okay. because he gained Christ through it. What this verse is saying to us is this, that we could lose everything. And if in the absence of all those things, we got to know Christ more, we would then count those things as rubbish because we would be glad they were gone because in their place is this greatest, is this greater knowledge of Jesus Christ. Paul had an idea of sharing in the sufferings of Christ. And he said, insofar as we share in those, we know him more. Have you ever heard the phrase that you, you don't really know someone until you've walked a mile in their shoes? This is the idea. In other words, we actually gain to know Christ As we do the things that Jesus Christ did, good and bad, not that he did anything evil, but that he suffered, that he went through great difficulty, that he faced rejection, that he faced the pain and anguish and desertion that was the cross. And so far as we share in those sufferings, we grow to know him more by sharing in something that he partook in. I think, based upon what we're seeing here, how very sad it is that many people, many Christians, spend all their energy asking God for stuff. And then they do their best to be good Christians to earn that stuff. When it is that very stuff that clutters their lives and hinders their relationship, with Jesus Christ. Knowing him and the power of his resurrection is the highest privilege we have. And joining him in his suffering supersedes all the comforts of life. Because if we take part in his sufferings, then we learn by experience the power of his resurrection, a power that is not just relevant later when we are resurrected, but can make all the difference now as we grow to experience it and know it and therefore know Jesus Christ. Wow. So if we think about this, that this gives us the proper perspective of life that this says many great things and this becomes then our motivation look how motivated paul in verse 12 here he says in verse 12 not that i've already obtained this obtained what well everything he just got done talking about this knowing of christ and knowing the power of his resurrection and all this in other words paul says says these things and paul sincerely means these things, but Paul means to state very plainly, look, I'm not there yet. I haven't totally obtained this. In other words, I'm not so obsessed yet with the resurrection of Christ and his power and knowing Christ, and I'm not so to the point that I've counted everything rubbish as to have perfect peace perfect acceptance of the present, perfect relationship with Jesus, he admits right up front, I have not already obtained this. I'm not yet perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Jesus Christ has made me his own. What is the motivation of Paul to press on to know Christ more? His motivation is because Christ has made him his own. And what that means is Christ has saved him. What Jesus Christ has done for you is your ultimate motivation to get to know him more because of what he has already accomplished for you. The complete regard of all things is rubbish compared to knowing Christ is something to attain to. He says, I count them all as rubbish. In other words, that's his philosophy, his conviction of the truth. But like all things, he wasn't quite there in totally being able to live it yet. There had to be moments for Paul when things got a little out of order in his life, when he cared maybe a little too much about what some people thought, or maybe he fretted over some detail, or maybe he experienced some fear about the things that he was facing. He may have moaned occasionally under the weight of difficulties. We have to remember Paul was human, and he shows it here when he says, I'm not quite there yet. And neither am I, and neither are you we're not quite there, but he says he presses on because Christ Jesus has made me his own. The proper Christian life is motivated by the finished work of Christ. What we do, we do out of a knowledge of him and not just an academic knowledge, but a knowledge as that of a friend, as that of, an, of someone that you know intimately and personally. And Paul sees improving relationship with Jesus Christ as the prize itself. Take a look at what he says in verse 14 here. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. I want to. I want you to look at this idea of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And here's what I want you to notice, that this is a call of direction. It's not a call of position. And a call of direction implies continual movement, perpetual movement. If he was calling you to a position, you would make your way over to that position and you would remain there. But he's calling you to a direction. When he saw his disciples on the shores of Galilee, he told them, come, follow me. He didn't say, come over here. He said, come, follow me. And then he traipsed all over the countryside and all over Judea and and Galilee and all the way over into the lands of the Gentiles and everything else. It was a process he was calling them to. And it was a process that even they never fully obtained to. It is an upward call, a call toward himself, This is radically different from the faith of many people who think that the call of God is a call for you to come down the aisle and join the church and be baptized and then sit there in that position as a Christian. But the very essence of being Christian is an essence of movement, of direction, of following, not ever having fully obtained it but being able to see it and being able to press on toward it, that is the prize. The prize is this upward call that we can know Him more, that we would ever be straining. Forward, as he says in verse 13, and pressing on, as he says in verse 14. In other words, there's a difficulty, a striving together with God in this. And I want to make it very clear here, as we've covered a lot of ground today, I want to make it crystal clear that although Jesus Christ has done the work to provide us salvation, that is when our work begins, not toward salvation but toward Jesus Christ himself. And as we start this new year, ask yourself, why am I doing what I do for Jesus Christ? Am I doing it to Because I think he's up there keeping track and checking off in a box, whether I've done it or not. Am I doing it so that he'll bestow upon me what I consider to be blessings? Or do I do it just because he has called me to? Do I do it just because I am following him? Do I do it just so that I might share in his work? That is what we strive for, to be rightly motivated in following Jesus Christ. The beauty of this is that if your goal is the upward call, is progress in knowing Christ. Listen, you are guaranteed success. You are guaranteed success. How can I confidently say that? I can say that because Jesus said, whatsoever you ask in my name, that will be given to you. And in my name means according to my will. The very reason that Jesus came, the purpose of all of his ministry, the purpose of the cross of Christ and the purpose of his resurrection are all wrapped up in one thing, restoring your relationship with him. And so if you ask him that you want your relationship with him to be better, is he going to say yes or no? And then it's not enough to ask him if you make effort in that direction is he going to grant you success in that endeavor and i say yes emphatically yes yes absolutely he will grant you absolute success in knowing him more this year if this is where you put your effort this is where what you ask for in your prayers you will find him. He says, those who seek will find those who knock. It will be opened to them. Now, let me put in perspective what I'm saying here. I'm saying that if you make knowing him your priority, he will grant you success. And that means you'll have success, whether there's another pandemic Whether the pandemic continues, he'll grant you success regardless of what political party is in office. He'll grant you success regardless of your health situation, regardless of your family situation, regardless of whether you have a place to lay your head at night or you don't. He'll grant you success whether you have food in the cupboard or you don't. Do you understand the power of this? The only guaranteed successful endeavor on this planet Because we don't know what tomorrow holds. We don't know what can happen. The only guaranteed success is that you can know him more if you make that your priority. He has said so. Nothing can stand in the way. And nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we pray this day and we earnestly desire, Lord, that you would put into our hearts the desire that we see in our brother Paul. For we know that you have promised that if we would delight ourselves in you, you will give us the desires of our hearts. So give us a desire to know you more. Give us a desire to strive in that direction. And Lord, let us seek you in prayer and in your word and in the fellowship of your people toward these ends. And let us be assured of our standing with you. Let us be assured of our success in this upward call because of the work that Jesus Christ has done. May he be our confidence. May he be our desire. For Lord, he is indeed our privilege. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're interested in finding out more or, or just simply discussing these things, I invite you to contact us and you can find us at whitesrun.org. At whitesrun.org, you can find out more about us, what we believe, where we're located. You can come join us here. We are still having worship services despite the pandemic. Uh, we meet at 11 a.m. on Sundays. You can also contact us by email at baptist at gmail.com. That email address receives personal attention, and you'll not be signed up for some mailing list you don't want. You'll be personally interacting with me, and I will answer your questions and help you in your journey of faith. This is what we're here for. So. May you be blessed richly in this new year. May you be blessed with a knowledge of him. May you be blessed with his presence, abiding in you by his spirit, encouraging you and walking with you. God bless you.